0: Hey everyone, Paul here. First of all, let me apologize to those of you who are accustomed to more frequent podcast output from me. I have been moving, my family and I are in the process of moving, a family of five, we're not moving out of the state of Minnesota or even just staying in the Twin Cities, but we have been moving and if any of you have ever gone through a move with children, we have three children. If any of you have gone through a move, you know how your life descends into chaos. (laughs) Only to have the very diligent hard work of rebuilding out of the rubble of that chaos into a new house. And uh, we're doing that, doing some updates, things like that. It's also the end of our kids' school year, so they're back at home. Activities in the summer are on an uptick, and so the uh, last few weeks you've noticed a considerable drop-off in the output for me on this podcast. I apologize, hopefully we'll pick that back up here real soon. I'm excited to come out of this little podcast hiatus with an excellent guest for you. Paul Vanderclay is on today. Paul Vanderclay is a friend of mine, he's been on several times before. I won't leave an extended introduction for him today. Those of you who are familiar with Paul, um, you're probably already excited for this conversation. Paul is a minister in the Christian Reformed Church, but he's best known for his YouTube channel where he has over 18,000 subscribers. And like me, for the past three years, he's been using that YouTube channel and his podcast to explore the intersection of theology and culture, theology and the current cultural moments we inhabit. And Paul's just one of my favorite conversation partners that I've developed a relationship with over the past three years of doing this podcast. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation with my friend Paul Vanderclay. Today's episode is made possible because of the generous support of listeners just like you over on Patreon. Make sure you stay tuned to the end of today's conversation where I tell you a bit more about our Deep Talks Patreon community, a place you can not only support this podcast, but a place where you can find connection with other people across the world who are exploring some of the very same ideas and wrestling with the same subjects I talk about with Paul Vanderclay today. So if you're looking for other people to connect with, you can find out more. We do different things like monthly Zoom calls together, have discussion forums, and uh, yeah, you can find out all about that at the end of today's episode. I reached out to you a few weeks ago to do another conversation because it seems like and, and this happens like I'll occasionally check in and you know obviously you you even admit this yourself the amount of content that you put out is is more than any one human being can bear, yeah, <laughs> which yes. is great I love it um so occasionally i' check in and go like well what what are the what are the threads that that Paul is following and I I'm always uh, fascinated by the threads that I go, oh, man, I think we're tapping in or at least exploring some of the similar things in parallel. And it seems as of recently, you've been thinking more about not just with kind of public intellectuals like Jordan Peterson, or, you know, the the YouTube intellectuals. Um, you're not just thinking about what they're exploring in the the demise of secularity but it's been interesting to hear your reflections on some of those expressions of the myth of secularism seeming like it's collapsing even in our public narratives and the stories that we tell which are always a reflection of our our cultural consciousness and i think like if i were to sum up your work as i've been following over the last three years It seems like you have been grappling, really, for the last three years with the ideas that are emerging, the movements that are emerging in these sort of twilight years of secularity. Uh, Both like, you're doing it on the macro-cultural level, you know, you're tracing these movements throughout history in Western Civ, but you're also doing these, capturing these personal anecdotes from people who seem to... In their own personal stories oftentimes like follow a similar narrative arc isn't that the case it's like yeah. I, I don't know how many stories you know you call them your rando conversations where it was like you know i grew up in the church you know i became disillusioned fell in love with dawkins found the meaning crisis and dawkins and the new atheists got either into psychedelics or jordan peterson or joe rogan or some combination of all those things kind of exploring church i mean how many of those are the script of your rando conversations. Yep. yep. So you think that's a fair summary of like the things that are really intriguing you and have been intriguing you for the last few years?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I, right before I discovered Jordan Peterson and went down the Jordan Peterson YouTube rabbit hole, I was working hard multiple times through C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles. and. Asking questions about, okay, we just had Ascension Day. Why did Ascension Day sort of fall off the map in Christian churches? We celebrate Easter, but Easter's a bit blurry when it comes to a lot of, especially evangelical churches. We celebrate Christmas, but that's, you know, there's this massive commercial wave we sort of have been carried along with. What about Ascension Day? Because most of us, when we look up, we imagine that, well, there's this rock up there called the moon. And beyond that rock, there's this ball of fire called the sun. And then there's a few planets that we sort of have in mind this little image we got from grammar school about the solar system. And then there's stars that are far out there. That's what's up. Mm-hmm. Jesus ascends. Up, And, of course, Lewis, this is before I had read the discarded image, Jesus ascending up made complete sense to our ancestors all the way up to sort of the discovery, the invention of the telescope. Right. (laughs) Galileo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Copernicus, I mean, everything has changed in terms of our mental map of this world. And as a local, as a minister of a local church who has to regularly deal with these biblical texts, we have Ascension Day, and it is completely disconnected from the Apollo moon landing. Hmm. And so we have these two worlds. And basically, most of us, deal with these two worlds that don't fit together in a fairly avoidant fashion. And I, I, get, I get grief from both sides of, of this conversation sometime when I just note that people are, get all ex- exercised about a biblical cosmology, and they don't seem to have the same problem with a biblical physiology. Hmm. But there's a ph- physiology implicit in the Bible. You're yeah, supposed to believe with your heart. Well, <laughs> do you think you believe with your heart, or do you believe with your brain? What does that word "heart" mean? Where is mind? I mean, all of these questions. And so I, you know, before I discovered Jordan Peterson, I was thinking a lot about Ascension Day because I basically I, I had it had it had pretty much dropped off my radar screen too. Till one of our senior citizens said, "You completely." you know, you completely blew by Ascension Day. And we, you know, it's not just the fact that we no longer have Thursday services for Ascension Day, Hmm. but you didn't even mention it the Sunday after. And now I don't think she was terribly, you know, invest, you know, she wasn't thinking on all these terms either. She was basically an older person who had grown up in the routine of, we have a Thursday Ascension Day service. And the reason churches stopped Thursday Ascension Day services partly was because People wouldn't come to them because why should they? They'll show up for Easter and Christmas, but they won't come to Ascension Day. Is Ascension Day any less important than Easter or Christmas? Theologically, Ascension Day is potentially more relevant to us in a certain perspective than Easter, because it's Jesus ruling over the world. But how does that work? And that gets into God number one, God number two, and and so you know over Twitter, once I really hit the superheroes, um, thing a few weeks ago, you, that really lit you up. You're like, ah, oh, this is, and yeah. because it, it had, you know, I'd listened to Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris talk about Sam Harris kind of blithely says, well, my daughter is so into, you know, Catwoman or Wonder Woman. Right. And Jordan's like, she's a she's into a deity she's into a god that's right and sam harris is like Psh! and this is god number 1 and god number 2 and so then that sent me down the comic book rabbit hole a little bit and x men or not x men but um um oh what was this this one so 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 the new the Justice League, yeah. um, mm-hmm. Zack Snyder, yeah. Watchmen. So I yeah. watched the Zack Snyder cut of that and looked at Miracle Man and Alan Moore, mm-hmm. and it was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Because they are actually they are actually playing, you know, reenchanting isn't the best term, but they are playing with the deep questions of what, what, what is the actual shape of this world being saved and what is the process? It's,
0: it's a myth. It's, it's myth just in the classic sense that the pagans had myths and the ancient Greco-Roman world had myths. I, I do. I want to talk about that, but I have to confess too that like Ascension Day is always one of the hardest for me. I, I remember I used to do this thing when I was teaching in the classroom it was the last day of school with my seniors, and uh, we called it Book of Secrets Day, because throughout the year, I wouldn't tell them what I believed on a lot of things, because I wanted to play provocateur and troll sure. them. So last day, when they're out of there, also, I didn't want to get in trouble with my administrators in my more conservative Christian school. So the last day of school was always Book of Secrets Day. You guys can ask me anything. And I remember one of the questions was, what's one of the things you most wrestle with about the Bible? And I said, the ascension and I've realized in hindsight why it is, is because uh, whether i like to admit it or not, there's still that deep secular age programming that runs in the background, like Charles Taylor, James K. Smith talk about it, runs in the background, and I don't even become aware of it until I realize how much I wrestle with things like the ascension. Like you said, more so than Easter and more so than incarnation, though that doesn't really make any sense. That picture of of Christ you know, like beam me up here. It feels almost like the fodder of ancient alien stuff, you know? And I always wrestled with that because I knew like, well, where's he going? Because heaven isn't just beyond the stratosphere. Like how far is he going? And I used to hate, there was the song, more of a contemporary worship song we used to sing, um, you know, maybe 15, 20 years old. It was called God of Wonders Beyond Our Galaxy. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And I always detested that song because it was like, no, I don't... What are we talking about here? Uh, God of Wonders Beyond Our Galaxy. It's... Uh, it brushes up against this deeply programmed secular story that we're all swimming in in the West, and it becomes exposed in moments like that because I'm like, where is Jesus going? It's not to the moon it's not you know to borrow something from Watchmen it's not like Dr. Manhattan that he goes up and vacates and hangs out on Mars for a bit so that's that was always that's a revelation because it actually shows me a bit of a blind spot in my own my own theology but getting back to the the superhero stuff you know One of the ways for me that I've been really interested in exploring beyond just like guys like Peterson or Taylor or, you know, uh, Jonathan Peugeot or John Verveke, these, these voices that are kind of hinting at the end of secularity and the appeal that people experience, the draw to them, the draw to a Joe Rogan is that Joe Rogan, whether he's aware of it or not, doesn't play well within the boundaries of the secular myth. He calls people to explore the possibility of transcendence. For him, it's through practices like meditation, through disciplining your body, through being really incarnated into your own body, but also these psychedelic experiences, right? That's a huge draw. It's people that it's primarily men, you know. I, I know there's women that are attracted to the work you're doing on your channel and participate as well. But I don't know, the demographic doesn't seem to be balanced, right? It's Predominantly males. Um, it's similar with the work I do on my podcast. I'm sure it's the same for Joe Rogan. You know, I've been to a Jordan Peterson talk. There's certainly women there, but it's more men that are drawn to it. They're, they feel this disenchantment. They feel the story doesn't offer them a sense of meaning or sense of significance. And so they're attracted to these stories. Why has Comic Con? which started off as this niche nerd thing in San Diego, I believe in the 70s, has blown up into an event that, I mean, pre-COVID, and I'm sure it'll happen in the same way post-COVID, if we get a really a truly pro- post-COVID world, hundreds of thousands of people fill the Comic-Cons. And it's such a misnomer when, you know, people that aren't into these stories from the outside, they go, well, it's just because muscular bodies and spandex are punching people it's like that's <laughs> no. not why people are attracted to these stories right. they're attracted to it because it provides them this mythological framework that the ancient pagans had which gave them a sense of meaning it gave them moral exemplars virtuous uh, exemplars to follow It also provided them this sort of cosmology and helped them understand where they fit in the universe. It haunted them, to use like Charles Taylor's language, that there's something beyond. And that's why people are attracted to these stories, and that's why they are the comic book stories that are now the most popular things on box office big screens. These are the myths that in some way, you know, there was this book a few years ago, uh, it's called Real Spirituality, and I'm, I'm drawing a blank on it. the author. Yeah, I've got it over there. And he's got, you know, there's no real data to back this up. So again, it, it might be more of an instance of correlation instead of causation. But he brought up this in- interesting point, pointing to correlation between declining church attendance and the rise of video stores. Now that's an old term, right? But when you saw home movie video stores spring up, starting in the late 70s and the early 80s, you also see a decline in church attendance. Now, a lot more research would have to take place to figure out if there's causal connection there. But to me, it's interesting correlation. The argument he presented was perhaps these stories have replaced the preacher. You know, these are the guiding stories people look to, and they actually give them a story that draws them into enchantment yep um that Zack Snyder one we can talk about that for a moment I don't know what what stood out to you I know you did some commentary on it but it seemed like one thing that stood out to you that also stood out to me was the scene in which Wonder Woman is kind of retelling the story of the old gods fighting off Darkseid the first time around yes and to me that was such a telling scene I'm curious why that stood out to you. I'll, I'll share after why it stood out to me, but I think we were both attracted to that scene.
1: I, I think that's exactly where the preacher stands. In In that sense, Wonder Woman is getting up into the pulpit and she is connecting the two worlds. But our worlds are, I think, a bit more... I mean you have the continuity in that frame of demigods, but now just as so with sort of with Marvel, you have Thor, who sort of inhabits both worlds. Now now, now okay, you've you know, so you've got Zeus and you've got uh Superman, and they're yep, they're in they're same working thing. in the same plane.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: and so now suddenly we have connected, oh. What were the Greeks doing? What are exactly. we doing? Whereas the, the now passing modernist secularist uh, subtraction story, as Charles Taylor calls it, is the Greeks were um, you know the Greeks were trying to figure out the world and they didn't know too much, so they invented all of these these crazy stories about this or that and now we know better. And so the, the Greek gods have diminished and now we have science. But no, mm-hmm. <laughs> no. And what we have is Christendom, which has also been receding with modernity and at least the Protestant version of it that gained hegemony and very much gained hegemony on in the American, you know, in in the United States because of the patterns of European immigration, because they were, I mean, the United States is basically the marriage of an intense religious, religious zealotry um, counterculture, which are the Puritans and the pilgrims with drug dealers, which are, (laughs) you know, Virginia (laughs) tobacco farmers. That's, that's what built America. I mean, Jamestown was a catastrophe until, Oh, heck yeah. Tobacco is addictive and we can, everybody in the world wants it. I mean, there were laws in Virginia telling farmers, please, you have to grow food because every every square foot was developed, was dedicated to tobacco because it was so profitable. But the government's like, we still got to eat. We still got to eat. So... And, and of course, in the North, these were people establishing the kingdom of God. That's what they were doing. You know, I talked to a guy a while ago who was talking about, you know, the founding of New Haven, Connecticut, where Yale University is. So, you know, where are those Ivy League colleges? They're all, in, most of them are in the Northeast. You know, this is who America continues to be, yet... Yeah it was some, all those Greeks and the the mythology, we're beyond all that. We're, we're up here above the necks. you know, heads on sticks, as Jamie Smith likes to say, we're up here above the neck, knowing everything, the entire world we know is at this level. And what we're seeing now is that, no, Freud was right. Jung was right in that most of what's going on is not in this little conscious part of the brain. Most of what's going on is in terms of formation. So, of course, Jamie Smith has been emphasizing that point. But in some ways, he's, he's following up on all the brain science, which is saying this little conscious, this member of my consciousness, Congress, that is working my mouth and is sort of aware, this is not what is calling the shots in many ways with respect to who you are and what you are is to a limited degree encased in this skin. Mm -hmm. But what you are is in continuity, not only with your genetic descendants, but with the descendants of your mythology that you were inhabiting and both, you know, receiving the data of the world, filtering that data, and also projecting back onto the world. That's much more of what we are.
0: Yeah, and that's why it's, to me, I'm so interested in cultural theology, not just reading the work or listening to talks by academics, but I'm almost, in some sense, more intrigued by what happens in a Marvel movie. Because in art and in story, that's where the sort of bubbling up from the deep places of our consciousness and people, you know, that make music and make art, how that process emerges out of them to create something and how we're all connected to this sort of cultural consciousness that we all share. Because we are we are in people. There's no removing you. You're not just an individual that can possibly be uh, in- removed completely from culture. So the cultural artifacts that we're surrounded with are putting these inputs into our own consciousness. And what emerges, especially when people work together, you know, a song by and large part can be the work of one or two people. When you look at a movie, that's a lot of people working together on a shared story, especially these big, big box office movies. Not, you know, indie films have probably fewer chefs in the kitchen. But when you get to the level of a Disney movie, a Marvel movie, a, there's a lot of people that have some say going on in what emerges in that story. And it's not like they're explicitly aware of the story they're telling. So you take a Zack Snyder's Justice League and you compare that with, you know, you know, maybe it would have been 15 years ago. You had the Dark Knight trilogy, Christopher Nolan's movies, which also was coinciding with like the heyday of new atheism. Yep. And what's interesting about those movies, it's a superhero movie, but it's it's grounded in the secular age. Yes. There's no superpowers, there's no magic. You right. know, the appeal of that story was, you know, that you got this guy dressed up like a bat that's kind of living in the real world. But now you look at the superhero stories now and it's like mm, we really want to toy with this mythology a bit more. We, you know, the grounded, you know, Cape Crusader I'm sure—I know they're doing another one with the uh, the Twilight guy, whatever his name is. You know, it's going to be coming out in a couple of years. Another Batman movie that's supposed to be grounded in, in real life. But people are really attracted to these mystical, mythological stories. So you jump into a Zack Snyder story who's really, like, divisive. You know, the, the Marvel to- Marvel stories in the movies always—they're they're kind of like they subtly break the fourth wall— you know from time to time they do these yeah. wink winks at the camera yeah. to go hey we know we're not in a story and Zack Snyder's stuff doesn't do that. It's much darker. So he tells the story about Superman from the very beginning, that Man of Steel the first movie where he's clearly drawing on these Christological connections. Yeah. So the original creators of the Superman story they were Jewish yeah. and they were using a Moses uh, you know, a Moses archetype story. Yep. Baby in the basket sent down the Nile. Superman sent down, you know, escapes Krypton. Yep. You know, these are Jewish immigrants telling a story of, a, of an archetypal figure. Snyder takes it and makes it Christological. They even—I remember this happening. When they came out with that Man of Steel movie, the studios actually put together these, like, discussion points for churches— um, at the time to have discussion about yep. it. And there was some yep. really clear symbolism, like yep. s- sometimes really on the nose. The second movie was that ba- the, the Batman v Superman one. And of course that one was really divisive as well. But part of the reason why it was divisive is I think people didn't understand the story that they weren't expecting a superhero movie to start dealing with the problem of evil and questions about if God is all-powerful he can't be all good which is literally something Luther says in the face of Superman yep. yep Batman's wrestling with nihilism you know all this stuff and it leads us to that Justice League movie where now God is dead and part of the problem that Superman experiences as this crystal Christological archetype in those movies is that he doesn't fit in in American culture how many times does Perry White tell him in that movies you know it's not you know, you're not in Smallville anymore. The world's changed and he's always like I don't fit in. The world didn't want him and then they kill him. How is he killed? You know, the spear pierces him. Someone asked Zack Snyder why a kryptonite spear, like Batman could make a kryptonite batarang or a kryptonite gun and Zack Snyder po- posted this picture of Jesus being pierced in the side with a spear. Like he clearly knows what he's doing here. Yep. So he dies. God dies. And what happens immediately? Something rushes to fill the vacuum. And I saw that, and I saw that story, and I went, oh, I think people are starting to feel as if, you know, Nietzsche said in the 1880s, predicted, you know, in the parable of the madman, the madman rushes through the town square saying, God is dead, God is dead, but they're not ready to hear it. Um, Nietzsche saw this forthcoming, the descent, the, the 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 falling out of the Christian story in the Western world. and You know, he was—actually, he was concerned about what would replace it. He certainly proposed some theories as to what should replace it. But as that happens, and people are now seeing the fruit of, well, we are never actually secular. There is never religionless spaces. And I think this is something that you've been bringing up for years. I mean, for as long as your channels existed, you've been— highlighting people who have been telling this story, who've been showing that secularity is totally a myth. So God dies. What rushes to fill the vacuum is something far, far worse. And the old gods, That's an interesting story because in some sense, the old gods kept that chaos at bay. You know, so that the, this myth, the the secular myth, right, was that we go from paganism to Christianity, an improvement. We go from Zeus. Everybody who knows Zeus stories knows Superman's an improvement from Zeus, a moral improvement. because
1: You got, he's, you got a, a good-looking daughter, a goose may show up, you know? That's
0: right. <laughs> that's right. Even in that, even in that scene in uh, Justice League, the, um, the god that, um, that gives the crushing blow to dark side is Ares— the god of war. And in the Wonder Woman movie, Ares is malevolent. And so you go and be like, well, these heroes are an improvement. Part of the secular myth has been, we had paganism. Paganism saw some sort of improvement in Christianity. And we are on this inevitable march of progress towards this utopian world. And now once we remove Christianity out of the equation, we're going to have something better. And I think you've seen in people's personal stories, but as someone who's studied this, People are quickly becoming suspicious that that is going to be the case. Um, I'm sure you've gotten that sense from people. But how—are there other places you're seeing that in stories, uh, in cultural stories, uh, or even just in the people that you're talking to, this suspicion about, okay— I don't really know if we ever were religionless. I don't know if what's filling the vacuum in the death of God is better than what we've had before. Where are you seeing that emerge?
1: Well, so The Good Place was a television series that caught my attention right away. It was clearly religiously oriented because um, it, it begins with a woman's death and she wakes up and there's, you know... Um, Sam from cheers <laughs> we 're not we 're not in a little Boston bar anymore um so here 's Sam from cheers and he 's older and he 's grayer but he's still he 's still him in some ways, and he 's explaining to another young blonde woman, Oh well, congratulations you know um you 're in the good place almost and then he sort of walks through a an articulation of you know, what, what is sort of the uh, pluralism account of ontology, which is that we can't know ontology. So this is basically skepticism. We can't know ontology. And there was just one rando that actually got it right. Everybody else got it wrong. And so, um, but congratulations, you're, you've arrived at the good place. And here at this good place, we've sort of turned it into a village not a city. It's a village. It's, you know, a couple thousand people maybe. So you can get to know all your neighbors and we've hooked you up with your soulmate and sit down and you can eat whatever you want and you won't get fat and you can do whatever <laughs> you want. And there aren't any of those nasty, there's only good consequence. There's only good results, never unintended or negative consequences to, to pursuing your desires. And so here you are. And Oh, but very quickly, this woman is a little suspicious because on one hand, she's a good person. On the other hand, no, she wasn't as good as she could be. Hmm. And this perfect world is not seeming... There's something weird about it. And of course, so spoiler alert, if you've never watched The Good Place, at the end of the first season, the big reveal is actually Ted Danson smiling Sam behind the cheers bar, is a demon. (laughs) And a little bit, a few more spoilers, a little bit ways into the series, surprise, nobody's a good person Mm. because the system is such now that um, anything we do in this world is consequential. You uh, um, You know, the strange persistence of guilt this article that I've read a number of times, there are no good people. Everyone deserves damnation. It's like, wow, this is sort of like Calvinism, but another way, but there's no grace and there's no redemption and there's Mm. no forgiveness and there's no hero. There is no hero. And so on one hand you've got with Zack Snyder's Superman, if there is a hero, we will kill him. Yes and on the other side in the good place there is no hero. Hmm. And so then then the team now so this is so american the demon isn't really thoroughly evil either and so they they sort of with all of their pluck and courage and innate goodness even the 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 bad people they're now they now have been have the opportunity To reconstruct a good place that really works. (laughs) Interesting. I've never seen the show. Oh, you've got to watch the show. It's only four seasons. I think it's all on Netflix now. Now they've got the chance to actually do it. And you know what? You know the best they can come up with? Having a really nice time for a limited amount of time and then ontological suicide. Wow. That's the best we can do. And it is it is pure, it is it it was for me one of the clearest pictures of exactly where um Chris Arnati calls it front row and back row. Yes. I think I'm gonna change that. I'm gonna call it front seat and back seat because the people in the front seat are driving. The people Whoa, in the back yeah, seat—they yeah, yeah. know a lot more. They're kind of in the back. They're like, oh, yeah, "I, am in the back. I'm always going to be in the back. I'm never going to be let into the front." But I got ideas about the people who are driving this bus, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's back row America. It's back seat America that tends to usually default to a lot of the older myths. May that may you know yeah. I've never met a homeless person who doesn't believe in God. <laughs> Atheism is is sort of a luxury good. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a metaphysic for the privileged. That's what atheism is. And I think if you look at human history, that bears out, but okay. But then now you've got the question of, is there hope? Is there redemption? Is, is there something beyond the good place? And, you know, a similar thing was Amazon's upload, which only they've only put out one season so far, but basically, you know, again, well, we can't know if there's anything after death. So what we do is again, we're using science as we download the contents of your brain. We download your consciousness into a machine. And now, you know, lots of black mirror has played on this. Yeah. Now you inhabit a server and, but guess what? There's sort of, it's a freemium model, you know, you can kind of get in and have an okay heaven, but if you've got enough money, you know you can you can pay the perks for, um, you know, for all these little yeah, the you premium know, access purchases. Yeah. <laughs> and but that's where we're at because we can't we can't actually, and I think it becomes much more trust. We can't actually trust that the universe is such that it can be better than we can imagine for ourselves.
0: But- well, why would we? There's not like a narrative that supports that in the right. secular story. Chaos, it's random. Yeah. You know, so as people become disillusioned with that, what other story are you going to tell? Yeah. Uh and where does that story come from? What is it aimed towards? This is uh this is the stuff where again, we've got plenty of really good, excellent public intellectual discourse that happens around this stuff. But the place where I think maybe a little bit of the front seat and the back seat meet is in pop pop culture. Yeah. You know? So yeah. when we start, when we look at the stories emerging, when we look at the aesthetic. That emerges, I think we've talked about this before, Dwight Hopkins, um, most known as a black liberation theologian, I've had him on before, you know, he laid out this framework in his, uh, I forget what his book is called, it's a cultural theology book. You know, he talks about the three domains of culture being spirit, aesthetic, and labor. And spirit is that invisible domain of transcendent ideas and values. And our aesthetic are the things that we make that give representation to those transcendent ideas. It's the way that spirit is actually made manifest in the phenomenological world, in the physical world. So in our stories, in our art, labor is what we do with our work that reflects the spirit that we follow. It's how we use the natural world around us and then turn it into something, how we work with each other, the laws, the laws that we make. So, you know, I'm really interested in these stories and I'm becoming almost more interested in them because I think those, those are maybe a greater indication of where the macro culture is shifting and heading towards, maybe even more so than what happens in, I, I, I this is such a pejorative term, but in ivory towers, which the reach of those ivory towers certainly becomes something as it's transmitted through the cultural artifacts, right? So, you know, whether it's critical race, whether it's postmodernism, whether it's Marxism, whether it's capital, whatever the, the story is, certainly those things do have in a certain sense a birthplace in ivory towers, but where they get disseminated and actually produce cultural transformation is in the cultural artifacts it's in the aesthetic it's in the stories that we tell so th- those are two stories i i don't know those shows at all and i find that really intriguing yeah. and as you look around you see you see this all over the place um and it's not necessarily something new another one i've recently talked about was of course fight club yeah fight yeah. club was to me That was my, you know, whether you're you're an older millennial like me or a Gen Xer, that was like one of the cultural zeitgeist movies of the formative ages of a lot of men in their teenage, early adult years. That and The Matrix, of course. And both of those stories, to me, Fight Club struck a chord because one of the things that actually emerges in this vacuum, the secular vacuum, it's that you. You one day you wake up and realize that, and you just played a clip in a cu- couple videos ago from a really, really good, it was a short video you did, 20-minute video playing some clips from a recent Jordan Peterson conversation. That was excellent. I mean, he was as succinct and as clear in his communication uh, that maybe I've heard in quite some time. And, um, you know, in that... You, you did such a good job of highlighting that what we actually end up seeing in these in, in, in stories like this is that we're, we we have these values. We're always aimed towards values. There's no valueless world. We're becoming aware of that. And in that way, there's no religionless world. And so I think Fight Club, for me was a realization that a lot of men in particular, experienced as they had built their whole life around being told, your aim and your telos is to find a career, and they started to realize that it really wasn't an empty, godless space. That they were actually following after Mammon, a very ancient god, the god of greed. And as they became face to face with how empty, as all idols do, all idols leave you feeling empty. The emptiness. What is you know? What does the protagonist you know lament about in the very beginning? That he works this meaningless job just so he can have nice furniture in his apartment. And he feels the emptiness of that. And why did that resonate? It was like an unveiling. It was apocalyptic. It was an unveiling of the God of Mammon. And um, and not that it presented the right response, I think, to that God's unveiling, but it, it, it showed you something. It showed you something behind the curtain. It's like, no, this isn't a neutral, a neutral space. And I think I think you're seeing that in those those stories that you're talking about, Paul. Are there many others others that have stood out to you?
1: Well, the good place was was the good place was one of the the clearest ones. What do you think that one was unveiling? Like, you know, that we we are insufficient as gods, hmm. and and I don't think that's a. So George Marsden is one of the. Uh, premier historians of religion in America over the last 200 years, and he wrote a book, "The Twilight of the American Enlightenment," where you know he goes into the 50s, 60s, and 70s. This this question beneath Fight Club was very much in being asked in the fifties about the corporate man, the, the suit and, and that, that came up and sort of exploded in the sixties. You know, the sixties are really 65 to 75, the Vietnam war years. And of course, you know, Vietnam was, was Vietnam and Watergate were sort of the undoing of super, the Superman myth, but Superman was the, you know, Superman was Uncle Sam. I mean, pretty Mm -hmm. much. (laughs) And, and so that, that has continued to bubble up. But, you know, if we think about a, if we think about an anthropology, we are, peak modernity says, you are your consciousness, and what has been revealed since then has been there's way more beneath in your consciousness that you have limited access to. And, you know, eternal sunshine of a um, spotless mind. Spotless mind. Yeah. You know, so many, so many, um, or even um, what was the movie, that, the whole movie that was backwards? Um, oh, um...
0: Yeah the the Christopher Nolan movie uh, yeah, yeah
1: Tenet yeah so oh, Tenet no not not just Tenet but there was another one I just watched Tenet that was fascinating too but there was another one a while ago which was the guy had no the guy had no long term memory so we'd take all these Polaroids oh. and pe- people who listen will immediately yeah he'll put it, it in the comments um so we've you know these ideas. So, so, so okay, so why aren't people in church? Well, why are, well, here's a more interesting question why are, in the Jordan Peterson phenomenon, I just had my first meeting with my local group of CRC pastors. You know, we used to meet monthly until COVID, and then we're on Zoom a little bit. We had our first physical meeting yesterday, and so we always catch up with each other, and they're always, you know, what, what the heck is Vanderclay doing on YouTube? <laughs> <laughs> um, What what is because they're not watching any of my videos because you know there's a there's a certain segment of YouTubers that are you know their lifestyle permits them and encourages them to watch a lot of content and that's you know some of my audience certainly but why are people I, I love your thesis that you know in a sense blockbuster displaced church and Netflix has continued with you know. Mm -hmm. with ferocity what blockbuster started because blockbuster you get one or two or three videos but you had to return them and then of course i was on the mail netflix for a while where they'd mail me dvds (laughs) and then of course but it was like why are they calling it netflix no they knew where they were going yeah and so now netflix is blockbuster is the crack to blockbusters cocaine and now we have COVID and now we've got church next to on, on, on the same screen as Netflix and uh spoiler alert church loses.
0: Yeah. We can't tell as <laughs> I mean, the story, we can't be as good as storytellers. I, I think we can tell a better story, but that's hard. It's there's a lot. And it's not all bad either. There's, you know, I don't want to demonize this to take a Christ against culture approach or anything like that. But there's a lot of true, good, and beautiful in these stories that people like um, Van Hooser calls the, you know, there's, there's the latent church, the church that exists outside of the walls of the church. And we see that in these stories. So it's not to demonize them. In some ways, there's a lot. What is it that appeals? You know, why do so many people will stick with the superhero genre, right? They go to these Marvel movies. And what's, you know, everybody's seen him at this point, but what's the, 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 the pinnacle, the climactic moment of the entire 15 years, I don't know how many dozens of movies they had in that final Avengers endgame is not Tony Stark just beating Iron Man, beating Thanos to a living pulp and beheading him. It's Iron Man self-sacrificially laying down his life you know, and people are attracted to that because there's a degree of the good news in that story. So it's not to demonize it entirely, but there's also, you have to have some sort of compass, like a guiding story compass to help you determine whether or not the stories that you're consuming are actually true, good, and beautiful, because a lot of perversion disguises itself as something that's true, good, or beautiful, but yet you know, you gotta have. Where's, what's the Rosetta Stone? Where's the? What are we using to actually decrypt those things? So that's the that's the concern I would have long term is that it's not that we can't have these stories. Or you got to stop. You know, do the '80s youth pastor, '90s youth pastor thing, which was burn all your secular CDs. You know, never go to a movie. Unplug your. You know, I remember kids. My youth group had T-shirts that said "Kill Your TV," and there's probably maybe a degree of helpfulness in that but it's not that entirely it's that if you're if you're not anchored to a true story you have no ability to discern whether the stories that you're consuming have their proper telos or whether they are a movement away from the good as you consume them but you're right those the exponential i mean netflix i i noticed the change in the years i was teaching From when those streaming services came online, I noticed a clear difference in the students. And, of course, the technology in the classroom, that was allowed to be incorporated as those changes were happening because they were effective. some, Some thought they were effective tools to have a laptop or an iPad in the classroom. But, I mean, do you know how many times a student in my class, like we're talking about stuff like we're talking about right now, and they're sitting watching The Office. And I'm going, okay, yeah, you shouldn't do that. And there's a degree in which there's just a selfish laziness in here. You'd rather watch The Office. But I'm also going, why would you rather watch, what is it about The Office <laughs> that you're so attracted to that would have you bail on this sort of discussion that we're having that attracts you to that story? That's another question. That's really the question I have. It's, a, it's one of curiosity. It's not one of pulpit pounding. We need to get everybody back in church. And I don't, I don't hear you saying that either.
1: Well, part of, I love, I hadn't hadn't heard that term latent church. I'm going to have to look, I'm going to have to look into that because I think that's right. Because I mean, one of the point books I point to, I actually asked, you know, anybody got a, anybody, a, a vision, a version of dominion that they've used already? Because what dominion points to is that in, in the Western world, we are Christendom more than we think we are. And in a sense, the the tell over whether you're going to church or not going to church doesn't necessarily mean what both people in church and outside church think it means. And, you know, church after Jordan Peterson, I mean, I get this on my Discord server, so one of the things, one of the ironies is that here I'm a Christian reform minister, but my channel is not flooding people into Christian Reformed church. If there's a church it's sending people to, it's the Catholics and the Orthodox. <laughs> what's with that? Now, I think part of it, and, and then I have people saying, what's with me that I go to the Orthodox Church on Sunday to receive the Eucharist and participate in the divine liturgy? But six hours during the week, I'm listening to you and Peugeot, <laughs> and so we've got this this Protestant sacramentalism going on, where six days you shall Protestant and do all your work, but the seventh <laughs> you shall go to the cathedral and participate in the holy ritual. Mm. And you know, part the of what
0: profane sacred divide is still there.
1: Yeah and and but it's really much more of a a, a rider elephant divide mm, okay because the the cathedral speaks to the elephant in a way that the the rider was sort of trained as a Protestant to dismiss you know, oh, I'm okay, it's dark. I know what you're doing, that's psychology because darkness is sort of you know, then you can throw all the vervakey things. Darkness is sort of triggering this in me. And, you know, the the cathedral has architecture in a certain way. And this is provoking this in me. And the music is provoking this in me. And I'm being manipulated. So the the riders at the top screaming at the elephant, you're being manipulated. And the elephant's like... Yeah, so? (laughs) I'm still going in and there's not a darn thing you can do about it. Yeah. And so... And so, part of what we're working on, and the writer is now. Remember, the writer is to some degree the uh, PR firm of the elephant, as Heide says. And so now, the writer is, oh, oh, well, this is this is spiritual. I, I the, 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 you know, the the bland little Protestant church with the talking preacher on the corner, which is my church. You know, that's 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 this is spiritual. And spirituality is, you know, so all of this stuff is, is going on, but you know, when Jordan Peterson tells Sam Harris, oh, you really do believe in God. And of course, Sam Harris is hard. You know, it's, it's like telling the preacher he's an atheist. I mean, it's, 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 that's that game, but you know, Dominion basically says, yeah, but a big component of your theology is your moral yardstick, and Sam Harris just takes the Christian moral yardstick and puts puts it up against the church and says, you don't measure up. And it's like, well, that's that's what preachers do every Sunday, isn't it?
0: <laughs> oh, hopefully not exactly, but yeah. But now, yeah well, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, right, right, not right.
1: exactly. Certain kinds yeah. of preachers do. Right, I mean, right, the right. question is, are you preaching guilt or are you preaching grace? Yeah, you're yeah, right. But in order to make grace compelling, you know, and then then you get into all kinds of stuff that we've been talking about in the church for the last thirty years. But
0: yeah, so the moral the moral yardstick that he uses is being grabbed from some places. I mean, I'm going through Dominion again right now, and Tom Holland does a great job of of illustrating this historically. Um, but when we are exploring art and story just like when you step into the cathedral it's it's not really okay if we were to say that stepping into the cathedral is some sort of psycho psychological ma- manipulation we apply that to everything right and this is why verveki's work to me is so helpful and he's such a great conversation partner on this because even though we're not necessarily from the top in our metaphysics, in the same place, verveki helps give language to the bottom-up processes. And to me, like if you have the sacramental view of the world and the truly Christian incarnational vision of the world, I don't see dissonance between the fact that I get a dopamine hit when I'm enraptured in song with other people and that dopamine hit to me is evidence of the presence of God. And it's not an either-or for me. The question about about it and this is one I've talked with John about and we're going to actually just looking to do another talk together is okay how do we know that we're the rider and the elephant are headed in the right direction that's the question that I have as we assess the cultural stories that we're looking at and we step into the world of art and beauty and wonder because some might say these are all just culturally conditioned right they're all just culturally conditioned so whatever you get culturally programmed at a young age to believe is true good and beautiful is what you're going to think is true good and beautiful the rest of your life but then you look at some of the things that seem to transcend across culture right right and right. you go okay there seems to also be not just cultural conditioning but a universal human condition right and what what in our universal human condition is for our good that leads and is aimed and oriented towards something good. Because even in The Good Life, even though I'm uh, The Good Place, I've never seen the show, they have a clear sense of what The Good Life is. So I think as people start to realize that, that is where they're they're experiencing the haunting uh, that Charles Taylor talks about, the imminent frame. They're feeling cross-pressured. And so to me, what I want to... I'm curious about we had some discussion um, with some of the people that listen to my podcast regularly. Somebody asked this really good question about, okay, so I think Paul, you guys are making a convincing case, both of you, Paul's, that secularism is in decline. um similar to maybe what Nietzsche saw was the decline of Christendom in the West. I think we're on the front end of the tail end of secularism, and what comes next is the question. And is it better or worse than what we had with secularism? And I see like a few different things emerging. I'm curious what you see emerging as secularism inevitably, to me, heads towards its death. I see re- revised, re- revitalized Gnosticism as one thing that comes up. So it's like, okay, the imminent, imminence isn't enough. So maybe the goal is to escape and transcend it. To me, that was the actual appeal of the Matrix movies. And the the Matrix—and it was funny, because at the time, where I was at in my own charismatic theology, I was like, oh, this is a Christian story, the first Matrix movie. And then well, how many ever years, 20 years removed from that, I'm looking back going, no, that's not the Christian story. That was the Gnostic story, <laughs> is that the world that you live in is an illusion, and you have to get the secret knowledge to transcend it. But that's also—that's a big appeal. I think that's part of the big appeal of the psychedelics movement. Psychedelics seems like you're taking the red pill, right? And you get this transcendent experience. Um, And I know there are are people that follow you that are going to get on me for saying anything negative about um, psychedelics. I know one person in particular who's always in my Twitter feed. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. He's there all the
0: time. Yeah. Um, So I see like revitalized Gnosticism, which actually is still in the church. As well, I saw it a lot in my charismatic and Pentecostal stream, which I, I still am consider myself charismatic. But there was a lot of it where these experiences are used to say we need to get out of here. We're trying to be rapture ready. We're trying to transcend. We're trying to get beyond. I see that in all these different forms. I also see maybe even a doubling down on the state and politics. Oh yeah. And perhaps even like the storming of the Capitol was good evidence to me of the decline of secularism, because I, the religious nature of that whole spectacle and the um, the liturgical things that happened even on campus—not campus, on site of the White House—the you know the, the nooses that were built, which again they weren't. There was even signs in front of them that said, "This is art, and not intend." They weren't intending to hang Mike Pence on the spot. I know that might be controversial, but it was like a liturgical procession of a certain kind of story. Uh, I see a few things like that, Gnosticism. I'm curious to see where the sort of revitalized panpsychism goes. I don't think reductive materialism goes on. I'm curious to pick John Vervaeke's brain about that because. You know, he's he's a non-reductive materialist. So to me, it's like, okay, what what is ultimate reality? Um, what are some of the things maybe you see emerging as secularism dies out, whether you think they're positive or whether they actually bring cause to concern to you?
1: Oh, there's lots of cause for concern. A secularism for all of its... I just, the videos I just did this week, and I'm working on the Jordan Peterson talked to Barry Weiss. What was interesting about that video was both of them are lamenting the death of what Jordan Hall calls the Blue Church, which was the, um, basically the cooperative mechanism by which the American empire, front seat American empire was able to rule over the last seventy years, it was a very successful thing for many of us, um, but that is going away. The liturgies are are manifest on both sides, both after george floyd you had right you know, there. foot washing yeah you had foot washing, you had on your knees, you had confession, and then at the capitol, you know you have other liturgies and yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's it's highly religious saints, but with saintly
0: figures, right? Yeah. Yeah. We have what, patron what, saints.
1: What what secularity sort of afforded was a mutual agreement to take the the most po- potent high voltage symbolism off the stage, leave vague christianist symbolism on the stage. We can agree with this sufficiently in order to Um, continue to combat our enemies. But of course, once the Soviet Union and the communist bloc were no longer the big threat that they were, and Islamic terrorism also wasn't the threat that everyone feared it might be on 9-11, you know, you know, everything, okay, now we're, now we're, now we're putting things back on the stage. And Okay, so there's this debate: Can the military fly a rainbow flag? <laughs> um, so there's there's a lot there's a lot going on there. So what secularism basically allowed was here we're going to give we're going to give this you know Robert Bella called you know it's civil religion, and it, his his essay is still worthwhile googling and looking up his essay on civil religion. You know, basically looking at Kennedy, but you know, for the most part, we will take Christian symbolism, and we will forefront that. Look at the National Cathedral in Washington. We will forefront all of that, and
0: you know, mm.
1: but but one of the things that that other Fight Club question asks beneath is okay. I'm asked to curb some of these desires, but for the most part, most of these other desires and basic needs will be met. That's sort of the bargain. And okay, well, let's say we're at the end of that bargain. A perpetual conversation in religion has been that of, you know, let's say our fleshy desires, as the Apostle Paul calls them, our natural appetites versus... These other more, um, these other higher desires that actually lead people to um, intentionally starve their natural desires, and so you have the monastic movement, you have ascetics, you have pole sitters, because they are they are attempting to reach greater. You know, yeah, they're
0: trying to reverse the trajectory towards those disordered appetites, and you right, have to go right. really, really hard in the other direction, Right. in theory.
1: Right. So, Verveke is, you know, he, because of his ontology, is basically saying, and his epistemology is basically saying, what we can really know with certainty, and this gets back into the certainty game, which, which in many ways we've been on since the Protestant reformation, we, we build from the ground up because that gives us certainty. So emergence. Yeah. But you know, in the recent conversation between Jonathan Peugeot and Rafe Kelly, which I thought was excellent, you should have Rafe Kelly on your, on your channel. I we don't just know. just connected
0: on on Twitter a little while ago. So maybe I'll reach out
1: to him. Yeah, you should. I think, um, I think you'd have a fruitful conversation with him, but you know, in that conversation, I thought Peugeot was quite clear. In talking about the relationship between emergence and emanation, because the Logos is, is, is many ways the emanation and, and that I know John Verveke really wants to get away from a two worlds mythology, but I don't think you're going to get away from it because the mappings of it are too clear. You want to, I mean, if, if you're going to get away from a two worlds mythology, then Logos is going to also have to be emergent but it just yeah. never feels that way to us and so when you have Barry Weiss and Jordan Peterson talking about the death of the blue church and Barry Weiss is is sort of going on about oh but we need i need a community around me in order to see myself and i need all of this she's she's hunting and she's saying well you know i i know that wokeness is not an avenue for the future. You, you don't have to be too smart to recognize that. So many of these little woke tricks, if you think about them through, they're you're you're not going to get there because it's purely, I think, as Peugeot says, a parasitic movement. The, the only unity they have is is because of their adversaries. So once you take out the man that you're mm-hmm. working against, it's sort of like in basketball, the um. You know, you have you're in the paint and someone you're defending and defending. It's so or it's a you pull, pull, the chair, pull the chair, boom, down you go. And that's exactly what happens with with the woke, because once you pull the chair, you know, they once they become the man, the cycle starts all over again.
0: And it's really and, hard for an actual leader to emerge from that movement because you have to be the best at deconstructing. And the hierarchical competition to be the best at deconstructing likely means you're going to be a casualty of deconstructing and canceling, which is like why I go. Well, I you just I don't. You're not going to have an MLK figure a emerge a from this sort of um, movement. I don't think it's possible. The, the The game isn't structured to have someone emerge victorious because, and there is there's need like deconstructive movements. There are valid critiques in them. But when deconstruction is the telos, (laughs) that's, you're left, you're left out in the cold. You have no structure to live in. You have no institutions to pass on to the next generation. And that's to me, like, to circle back, like, that's what the concern of Zack Snyder's Justice League is about, is you've killed off Superman, and you've destroyed the the thing is Superman's a, I mean, he's better than Zeus. He's better than Ares. He's better than Artemis, but he's still probably got his flaws. And you, but you deconstruct that to the point where you kill it. And it's like, you just think something better is going to emerge in that vacuum. It's like, I don't know. And even like, I've been provoked by some of the messaging towards Christians that I remember getting a lot in my 19, 20 years old, 21 years old, about you know, the revolutionary nature of the message of Jesus. And uh, true, like, there's a paradox here. It's, it is revolutionary in a sense, but it's like a mustard seed revolution. It's not the way we envision revolutions. And Tom Holland brings this up in his book, this tension between Paul's message and the fact that Paul's like, hey, you know, you should like subject yourself to the governing authorities, pray for them. Peter's like, fear God, honor the emperor. Like they realize it doesn't, it's not for the blessing of the world if you destroy the Roman roads you need for the gospel to be preached on. You know, so there's this slow growth tension in the way of the kingdom. It's that mustard seed that you barely see and it grows into a tree. It's not, it's not status quo maintenance either. It's just an entirely different thing. It's a third way All together, and I'm hopeful even, like, as—I like that term, the blue church. I haven't heard that before. That's actually a really helpful way of framing what some people are disillusioned by. And I think simultaneously, some people are trying in the death of secularism to champion, to go back to. And that's where you actually get these dark Superman archetypes in the stories. Why has that become a thing? Well, to me, like, if we're going to use that blue church— symbolism the dark superman archetype is like a critique of blue church you know it's like this guy that was truth justice the american way we see these in all these stories of course there are these actual dark superman stories in the injustice comics you could go back to frank miller's work in the 80s with the dark knight returns and superman is essentially a pawn for ronald reagan he's got to put out the batman but then you also have these new shows and comics that are popping up like um the boys on yeah, Amazon yeah, Prime. Yeah, I've you've got the that. you've got the Homelander, who's the Dark Superman archetype, the critique of the blue church. You had another really popular like comic cartoon on Amazon, Invincible, Omni Man. Yeah. It's yeah. the same thing, and um, so I think in some ways people, I'm concerned sometimes like the appeal the appeal to Peterson early on. Was people seeing him as a voice defending the blue church and like we need that? And it's I don't know, you know, the culture. He is. We've talked about this before. Yeah, <laughs> he is. He, yeah, and I I would hope that eventually he transcends and unplugs from the culture war matrix. Um, I just don't know if we would have ever heard of him if he didn't.
1: Right. He well, at the. The, the question, the difficult question is what is, what is beyond the blue church and we're getting, what is beyond secularism and we're going there. Yes. The, the, and, and so the, the video I made two days ago or the video I posted yesterday, actually there's a version which didn't have the ending. And then there's the second one has the ending, but so how can we, how can we conceptualize secularism in, in some ways it's a bright fog. And and the reason it's a bright fog is because what secularism affords affords is a degree of pluralism within it. You have Protestant, Catholic, Jew. That's the that's the you know that that was a very famous book written in the middle of the twentieth century. Protestant, Catholic, Jew. Totally. Those are sort of the three. And 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 secularism that we don't kill
0: each other when we go to the mall is a good thing.
1: Exactly, that's right. But we will still participate, as Jamie Smith talks about, in the liturgy of the mall. We'll still participate in the liturgy of them all. And and so there was a degree of hedonism that was afforded, but at least as a culture, we sort of had a sense of too much hedonism isn't good so that there are limits to this. Again, the problem that you have with a a woke, a, a thoroughly deconstructive thing is that your leaders must be crucified. That is because that is the only way that they can maintain their status is they must be crucified. Martin Luther King Jr. had to be assassinated for him to now be um, memorialized in granite on the Washington Mall. He needed to die because if, like you have currently with Black Lives Matter, one of the leaders of the organization just purchased a seven-figure Hollywood mansion overlooking the heights of the City of Angels, Once you get that, you're you're just in the middle of perpetual. I mean, that it's that spiral that Peterson is deathly afraid of. And so he sort of stands at the top of it and says, you know, the the blue church, in the blue church, we didn't go down there. And he's right. And so a lot of other people are look at him and like, oh, okay, he's on our side. But Peterson on the other side says, he says, okay, Christianity Christianity was what kept us from that, but, and, and that's, and he stays then, he stays right there, chaos and order in, with mm-hmm. respect to Christianity, which is what keeps him interesting. But, okay, what is beyond the blue church? So the, what, what the fog, what the bright fog of secularism afforded was we can have a degree of plurality of pluralism but we don't need to stand in the full sunlight because, and this is where you let's say, trigger the prologue of, of the Gospel of John. We can't stand the full light. The full light kills us. That's why we can't stand in the presence of God. And, and then you get back to this deeply, the, the, the continual understanding of the ancient world, which was This world and this life can only afford so much. And in order, there needs to be something from somewhere else, not of this world, to actually allow us to go places we've never gone before. Star Trek says, you know, we can sort of build our way up. These are people and, you know, these are other people in metal ships that have, you know, you know yeah the borg di- different things <laughs> yep. but um so the the you know basically the jesus story says okay your deconstructive heroes have to be crucified there's no other ending to the story that's stable but but wokeness is just perpetual crucifixion it's the guillotine you know okay we're going to start with the royals and then we're going to and you know the story of the french revolution was if you just ge- keep guillotining everyone, or maybe in the Soviet Union you can live behind closed walls and say there's no private property, but there certainly are exclusives. Yeah, <laughs> no private property means no exclusives, and so you know that doesn't work. The corruption, you know, bailed them. So, and then you still
0: have to build something at the end of that, right? Exactly. So when you come out of that process, you're in the tail end of the process. Like the Jacobins are like, well, let's switch to a ten day week because we have to have something so different from the old order so we can differentiate ourselves from the old order. You go through all this, and you still have to build something, and it turns out the 10-day week didn't work. It was worse than the seven-day week. The changing of the holidays, um, you know, you change the, 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 the Notre Dame Cathedral to the Temple of Reason, and then what do you do? Well, you still have a temple, like, so I think the thing in the last few videos you've been talking about, which is the realization I think is is dawning on most people, even those like, um, um, who was the gal you said, uh, Jordan Peterson was talking to. Very Weiss. you right. Even a self-admitted, um, I don't know if it was her or someone else in a different video. Um, who's the, no, it's the gal that talks with, uh, the the two brothers that are always the math guys i, I don't follow them a ton oh uh, oh heather hying yes yes that video you know she's a self-admitted atheist but not yeah, a new atheist yeah yeah and yeah and it's dawning on her that religion is an inescapable feature yes. of society so it's yes. like which god do you want to have that's right. the better question
1: right but she's sort of like the she's sort of like the parent who sends her kids to sunday school and so is jordan peterson yeah. We need religion, but not for me. I'll send my kids to Sunday school and to VBS, but I'll stay home and watch Netflix because I I have my degree. I don't really need it, but all those other people, they need it. It's not gonna work. It's not gonna work.
0: <laughs> yeah. I do think, though, that part of that blue church resurgence, or even—and I want to be careful and I say this because I don't want to be offensive—but I do think some of the attraction to Catholicism and to Eastern Orthodoxy, there's so much tremendous theology in both of those traditions that I love and I value and I celebrate. But I think as a movement, part of the attraction to it is people going, okay, this train of progress, this inevitable moving away from the past, because we think any movement away from the past is a movement in the right direction, has to be altered somehow. So I'm going to go back to the past when people were enchanted. And it's really funny, like, I, I have talked to young, younger people whose parents—their parents came out of Catholicism to their born-again evangelical experience, like my own mother. Now, one generation away— their their kids are going. Hmm. I think I'm done with evangelicalism. I'm going to go back to the Catholicism that my parents my parents left. And I don't. It's not even so much to me like the theological reasons as much as well. It seems like back there those people at least they are enchanted. They this is a place. This at least is a story that offers me. Uh, it's a coherent story. It's a story that offers me wonder and beauty. And something that's a bit mysterious. What are all the smells and bells for? Right. It's something that disorients my senses. I don't have a grid for all of it. I am sympathetic to when John Verveke, though, says, and he's not the only one that says, I don't think, at least in Western Civ, that there's a going back.
1: Right. And and that's sort of where. Because there's a reason why
0: people came out of it. And it's like and yep. I'm, I, as yep. a charismatic i am really attracted to these new you know, these old practices of liturgy robert weber yep. you know the ancient future stuff and i i yep. see that happening a lot of people there's an anglican new anglican church is popping up down the street from us and really excited about the good work that happens there yeah. but I, I do tell people sometimes if liturgy was the
1: solution we would have never had a reformation exactly the, the here here's a news flash for you The France, the French Revolution happened in what country? (laughs) What country was probably the most, one of, you know, what country, I mean, Italy wasn't yet a country, the most thoroughly, well, maybe Spain is a competitor, the most thoroughly Roman Catholic country in Europe. What followed the French Revolution? I mean in some ways the French revolution was the French reformation and what followed it was Napoleon the most thoroughgoing modernist reformer in Europe. Yeah. And and so it's in a sense you know Germany and Switzerland and the Netherlands and England they bought into the protestant reformation and that resolved some of the tensions those way. You know France sort of buckled under and um, you know, oh, we're, we're gonna resist the Protestant Reformation. They had the French Revolution. And then they had Napoleon. And, and if you continue to look at, let's say, the differences between the French model of secularism and the American model of secularism, you, you can see, so you're not allowed to wear a burqa in France. Why not? You are in America. Why? Which country better affords pluralism? So these issues, and that's where so and which is got more me. Christian. Exactly. So we've got Verveke, yeah. me, and Peugeot. So most of the time it's me and Peugeot because we believe in the resurrection. We, you know, we're we're Christians, we're expecting a second coming. We're, you know, we're we're inhabiting. But then suddenly when the question is, well, can we go back again? And then suddenly I'm over by Verveki. Yeah. I'm like, oh, no, you don't go back again. That's There's why. no going back again. And part of this is, you know, when I look at, say, Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, the kingdom came in Orthodoxy in Constantinople with Justinian. That was the successful Roman Empire. The kingdom came, and where did it go? Islam.
0: Or even before Islam. You want to talk about how the Haggai Sophia was built?
1: Well, exactly.
0: You want that? Like, that is—so that's where, if I could offer nuanced critique, because you've brought this up in a few videos back, you were playing a clip of Jonathan Pagiot talking about universal history with with someone else. I hear that stuff, and I'll be honest, I go— Been there, done that, and it didn't work. And this is why postmodernism is a valid critique. This is why people are suspicious of meta narratives, because when you start talking about a universal history, and there's like, well, where are the Chinese in the universal history? Where are the Africans, the ones that you didn't colonize? (laughs) You know, and people hear that, and you go, "You're going woke," and it's like, well, no. There's a valid critique there in universal historizing. I think I made that word up. That goes okay. Who's telling the story? Is it the front seat? Is it the people driving it? Do they have a vested interest? Those are valid critiques that we don't want to squash out because we go, oh, postmodernism and make it a boogeyman. Because it wasn't. You want to tell that story from the perspective of the, 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 the people that were uh, huddled up into, I believe, let's see, that would have been right before the building of the Haggai Sophia. Justinian is hiking up taxes. People are upset about that. You've got these competing political factions, which are also like tied up into chariot racing. I think they call them the greens and the blues. And what they did, what Justinian did was he rounded them all up saying, okay, we'll have a meeting about this. And he killed all the people, silenced dissent, continued to raise the taxes so that you could have this beautiful church that when you step in, you feel immersed by beauty with. It's like, have you ever watched the the queen before? And you feel like, oh man, these castles are so beautiful. Look at all these artifacts. And you start to go, well, where did these come from? How did they build this? And like, that's actually part of a valid critique that isn't postmodern. It's to me, the Jesus that identifies with the poor and says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I don't want to lose that because I get really, really concerned about, well, that's are you, are you Marxist? Smuggling stuff in—it's like it's not that. There's there's a story that's much older than that that holds these tensions together of order and chaos, of deconstructing orders that aren't working, but like a mustard seed slowly growing, seeking the good of the city you inhabit. Jeremiah twenty nine. Um, yeah. So I'm a little suspicious about that, and I, I feel that tension that you feel between those two worlds. Where I hear John and he's like. We can't go back. And I go, well, there's something true that's always been true. Um, so we can't go back completely. So I, I I hear that. But then I also connect with you. And when I hear someone like a Jonathan Peugeot talk about, you know, we need to be really, really aware of the symbols and what the symbols are pointing to, that these aren't neutral symbols in the stories we inhabit. Um, I'm sympathetic to both. A, I feel that tension, and living in that tension is difficult.
1: Well, it's, with many of these things, you, you both need a universal history, and you can never quite fully pull it off. It's both true. And again, in Christianity, incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension— um second coming i mean it's all it's and and so what happens in christianity is you actually hold all of these things together and but again to what degree are we is to what degree is this world able to host a stable to what degree is this world able to afford the sum of all our joys. And the Christian message is it isn't that there has to be we're pointing towards the, the, um, the reunion of heaven and earth, but remember they descend. We don't build them. Now, whenever I say that people are like, well, no, we are supposed to garden. I mean, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. that's the original job. We're supposed to garden and we're supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fulfill the earth. That certainly is ours. So it's not that we're idle, but we it's have God to God that under- gives the growth. <laughs> that's right. And and so it is, I, I and this is where now I'm sort of back on Peugeot's side. We're not going to get away from a two-worlds mythology because those tensions, I would say, are built into us, and this is where I'm more with Peterson biologically, we are the one creature that is the merger of heaven and earth. That's what we are. We are the stuff of earth and the breath of God. And so heaven and earth meet us, that right inside of us. The Bible says that in many different ways. Book of Ecclesiastes, he's built eternity into our hearts. And this is both our glory and our torture. Because the best we can do is a tower of Babel. And that story is that story gets recycled again and again and again and again.
0: It's true. So, that it's more cyclical than linear.
1: Right. And, and the more, um, you know, the, the, so, so what are the stories then in the Bible where kingdom does come? Well, they're apocalyptic stories. so, Elijah builds an altar, you know, when we say fire comes down from heaven, lightning, you know, they're on a mountain, lightning comes down from heaven, you know, burns up the sacrifice, evaporates the water, and the prophets of Baal are slaughtered. It's the book of Revelation. And and so, in our short lives, we are, you know, we are always somewhere in this cycle but it's in that way, you know, it's spirals are both cycles and progress. And I know I've just made all the spiral dynamics people excited, <laughs> the integral people that you, can, you know, find on rebel wisdom, but that, you know, that's the, that's the direction of the biblical revelation, but fundamentally, and this is so hard for moderns to swallow. You are, I mean, I just watched the Jordan Peterson, Michael Malice video. And I, you know, I I always find anarchism. You know, so one of the guys in the Discord communities keeps says, no, Christian anarchism. What's that? Well, Jacques <laughs> Elul and and Simone Vey and, and Tolstoy says, Oh, okay, well, I, I, I'm not I'm not annoyed at that like I was at Michael Malice, because this world can only afford so much, and we human beings are what we are and and the the fact that eternity is in our hearts the fact that we are the breath of god and the stuff of earth this is both our glory and our torture because on one half we are tortured and this is the story in the garden where um you know the serpent says you know did he really say is he really holding out back on you and so visions of towers of babel well up in our hearts and we imagine we can construct and we can save ourselves but the message is that we are not capable of that mm. and at that point then we are back to worship and and we hold in and and we live between we we live between the cross and the resurrection we're not yet at the resurrection but the path is cruciform until the resurrection and again this is basic christianity we've known this story but the, then, where I say we can't just simply go back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jonathan Peugeot is deeply Protestant. And, you know, no, he left Protestantism, but you take it with you. You know, I am deeply secular. Oh, but you're a Christian minister who believes in the physicality of the resurrection. Yes, but I am secularism is built in me in ways that I will never in this life divorce myself from. There's this limitation we simply have to accept and then turn over to our God and say, here is the offering that I have. Here's the offering that I am. It's the best I can do. And that's, of course, where um, we are not saved by works. We are saved by grace through faith. Not that anyone can boast. So to it's me, the that's right. That's right. That's the grace is the emanation. Grace is the word from above of pardon, but it's also the 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 means from above. And that's the gospel of John. He's the means from above. And now in secularism, we say, oh, I can't believe that stuff. Oh, okay. And it's, that's but that's, you're but living it thing. out because <laughs> mm-hmm. you're in Christendom.
0: And that's the thing, in case people think I'm being uncharitable to some of the ancient traditions like orthodoxy. That is another part of this the good attraction. Or the ancient Eastern Orthodox tradition is the story of and the the framing of Theosis, you know, and, and that's something that I had not heard of until I began to explore that, and there was real attraction to that because in that story, in that framing of the story, is a way of addressing those Tower of Babel appetites in us. Um, Stanley Grant's the passed away. I don't know if. You, Years ago, Baptist theologian and his systematic theology, he talked about how humans, unlike any other species on the planet, appear—unlike any other species that we're aware of, save for maybe cancers, if you can call that a species—we are not satisfied with our habitats. And we always are moving beyond, beyond, beyond. And that, in one hand, can be like a cancer on the planet and to the rest of creation to our neighbors, to our brothers, that constant greed, that ancient mammon idol. But it can also be directed towards what we were made for, which was union with God, the ineffable, you know, the the unlimited, uh, the, the fountain, the fountainhead of all truth, goodness, and beauty. And so there's a way that we can have that appetite. There's a degree of even harmony in a sense with Buddhism then, because Buddhism, part of Buddhism, I guess, is to say it behind it all is nothingness. And so you should be satisfied, right? To be satisfied with what you have. And in some sense, there's a degree of harmony there because beyond our momentary experiences of the good, the true and beautiful, we feel in that very next moment, a sense of dissatisfaction, right? the degree of harmony there is to say there is a sense in which what's the line between infinity and nothing infinity feels so beyond and so when we say that we've we're made for an infinite god there's this infinite journey in us and it's a recognition of thing right in front of us even if it is a good it is an invitation to go further and that appetite steered towards the good is is a blessing to the world it's a blessing to everyone around us the perversion of that is the pursuit of lust these are the the seven deadly sins what are the seven deadly sins if not the perversions of those those good things that we are called to pursue on our journey towards the union with God in Christ the question then becomes like as we inhabit this story this cultural frame that we live in Are we able to discern the spirits of our age, which are calling us to see certain things as an end to themselves? This is Romans 1, right? Certain things and things that are made with human hands as an end to themselves. Or we called on that perpetual journey. So maybe that's the place to me where a verveiki is right. And that we aren't going back to the past. You know, we don't want to make an idol out of any particular tradition, stamp it in the ground and say, I get this, you know, you probably have these conversations your church too with people that are like, well, I don't know how we feel about contemporary music versus traditional music. I'm like, traditional music is just contemporary. You're just saying, we're pressing pause back several hundred years ago and saying that music was blessed by God for worship, but not this, which is a weird thing to do. So that tension between the two is like, We have, we can't, we're not going back and making idol of the past. There is an eschatological aim, and yet that aim is oriented by received wisdom that we must cling to and hold to and pass down to our children and their grandchildren. And can we find harmony? So maybe that's the thing for me that I'm trying to sort through is like, okay, what was even good about secularity? That was actually bearing witness to the truth that we want to cling to. Like, I don't want to go to the mall, and or go to a public space, a public space of any kind, and feel like I might step into a religious war or a tribalistic war between races and all the different cultures we're being split up into. I don't want that. What was it that was actually true, good, and beautiful? We need to cling to that's in harmony. So maybe it's it is a universal story, but I I like you know I like Tolkien's idea better in the Silmarillion that there's a song of creation, we have a unique m- melody, but we can contribute our music to the song of creation as long as it's in harmony. So what I'm looking for is harmony versus discord, you know. But in order to do that, you kind of have to have a tuning fork. Yeah you know, and so we're, right now we're in a cultural moment. It's like, we're done, we're moving away from secularity and we're still going to tell you that there's discordant notes and harmonious notes, but the good place is like, we don't really know what we're tuning up against, right? That was what the show was really about. We feel that there's a good place and a bad place, but, um, yeah, so I'm curious. I, I, I always love these conversations, Paul, because I, I feel like I gained so much from, uh, from your wisdom and even hearing these shows that I hadn't consumed and taking in those stories that I now have to I gotta go check out. You
1: know? Well you've got a lot of you've got a lot in your catalogue that I haven't had a chance to listen to too. So I uh, you know I've got you know I've got maybe one or two I've got time in every day for maybe an hour of listening. And so it's it's I don't listen during work hours usually because Yeah, yeah, But um, I don't do the kind of work that affords listening. Unlike a lot of my audience, they're coders and artists and illustrators and they can listen while they work. And most of my work, I can't, I can't, I can listen to music, but I can't. But, you know, secularity, secularity does have its, you know, in, in some ways, you know, Jordan Peterson and Barry Weiss are saying secularity was the golden age. But we've all got our own little nuances on that because of course, Barry Weiss is a lesbian and she's married and so her golden age started in 2013 and rapidly deteriorated from that point with the woke. Even first um, term so Obama, it wouldn't have been L. a golden age. That's right. She's got the L and you know, nothing past the L, thank you. And no, no G or B or D, maybe the G, but no, certainly no T's. Um, and secularity, secularity in many ways afforded a, 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 secularity was in some ways an attempt at so so let's let's use the lens of universal history. Now there was in secularity an implicit universal history that afforded secularity, and in many ways that was the subtraction story, and in some ways the new atheist. To 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 one degree or another. When you are able to actually articulate the epitome of your universal story, you then set up its undoing Mm. because in many ways, the new atheists did exactly that. They elevated the subtraction story and they basically said, here we are at the pinnacle of civilization. And then everybody looks around. Is this all there is? (laughs) You're going to set up a deconstructive cycle and so the universal history of secularism is the subtraction story but it's not universal enough and so so then you've got other discordant voices saying hey wait a minute your utopia was purchased at the at the um the un <laughs> that the uncompensated suffering of my ancestors. And they're right.
0: They're totally right. right.
1: Then the question is, how can you compensate the uncompensatable? So part of the reason the reparations conversation seldom goes anywhere is someone brutalized your great grandparents, put a dollar sign on that. So, you know, in the wake of George Floyd, There was a court case. There was a settlement. Okay, so are we done? Are we done with George Floyd? Because the city of Minnesota paid a settlement to the family? Doesn't look to me like we're done. So what did that money purchase? And and so then, you know, we're back into the Christian story. How can the uncompensatable be compensated? Only by, now we're in penal substitutionary atonement, (laughs) only by, it's in Heidelberg Catechism, that which you also, something of such value that it can't be. The infinite. The infinite. So, you know, now we're, you know, now we're in (laughs) archetypal stories. Only the infinite can purchase the infinite guilt. These are the only things that work. So here we are again. (laughs) back at christianity
0: (laughs) that's a good place to land that's that's awesome well this has been a blast um i'm thinking maybe even um i'm having another talk with verveki we're working on the date but i think at some point i'd really actually love after that one maybe a little bit later towards the fall to get both of you together, and maybe I can act as sort of a mediator between, because uh, there's times I've heard you guys talk together that I go, I want to ask him, but while he's in the presence, or at least virtual right, presence right, of the other right. person, um, I think that would be really, really fun, profitable conversation. So thanks for doing this.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. It's always good to talk to you, Paul. Keep doing Dude. what you're doing. I, I like what you're doing, and I think it's really important. And it's... Um, yeah, there's no we need lots of we need lots of voices working at this because we all you know it's we we so quickly look for a hierarchy, someone who's got a hundred million subscribers or something like that. And it's like, no, actually the way this changes is all these that's the church way of change. You can have a community that you can participate in because it's small.
0: Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Paul Vanderclay. If there are points of agreement, disagreement, follow up questions, the first and best place to express all of that is in our discussion forum for this episode. I post a discussion forum on Patreon, a place where people can chime in, ask questions, they can provoke me to thought with their questions or challenges. Uh, have discussion with other people on things that come up in this episode, or even our tangential points to the episode. They're a great place to have some online discussion in a more, I think, more profitable forum than doing this on Twitter or Facebook or someplace else, where you're going to find that in our Deep Talks Patreon forums that people are a little bit more open uh, they are more charitable and nuanced and even expressing disagreement it's just it's been a great place to connect with others uh, about the ideas we're talking about in these episodes so feel free to check out that discussion forum certainly you can reach out to me on twitter or on instagram as well if you're finding this podcast to be a value in your life i would invite you to support it on Patreon. There's different levels of support, and each one of those levels have some different benefits and perks to them. There are things like a monthly Patreon Zoom hangout with me and other members of the Deep Talks Patreon community where we have just a time to discuss things that we're reading or listening to. We take a poll or a vote on different subjects that we want to discuss and talk about each time we gather every month. There's also opportunities if you wanted to do a one-on-one conversation. We can do certainly find time to schedule that as well. I also offer bonus Q&A episodes, other talks I sometimes give elsewhere, as well as articles, charts, graphs, recommended reading lists, hopefully a bunch of things that would help you on your theological journey. It is because of the generous support of listeners just like you on Patreon that I'm able to keep doing this work. I want to give an extra special thanks to Clint, Jesse, Anders, BJ, Carolyn, Eli, Elise, Dr. Jim, John Mark, John Michael, Johnny, Josie, JT, Justin, Lola, Luke H, Matthew, Michael Hawk, Michael Hernstein, Michael Peterson, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Peter, Rob, Sam and Nicole, Sam P, Sarah R, Sean C, Taylor S., and Tim K. Thank you all for your generous support for keeping this podcast afloat. I can't do it without you. I look forward to hearing your comments, your feedback, your objections, all of it. Again, hope you can participate in the discussion forum. If not, you can try to reach out to me on Twitter. And until next time, we'll talk again
1: soon.